Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today on the American Glutton Podcast, I talk to Rob Wolf. Rob is a former research biochemist and is a two-time New York Times Wall Street Journal bestselling author. His books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat, have helped thousands of people transform their lives. You can find him on Instagram at DasRobWolf or on his website, RobWolf.com. Rob Wolf, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Huge honor to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I think more than anything, I looked at paleo and it just, it was like an intuitive sense of like, yes, this is a healthier way to eat for me. And I certainly feel better when I eat more towards those ideals. That's how I got to know you. I'm so excited though to talk about your next book, Sacred Cow. Is that cool? Yeah, I would love that. Yes. Amazing. So a few of the things that I think about are like the the role that meat plays in my life. It, it plays a big role. I, I do tend to eat a lot of meat. It's become leaner in the last year, year and a half, but I still find myself eating a lot of meat. And, you know, the, I think when when I look at the way that that meat is produced, unless I go way out of my way it's, 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 it's a letdown. Does that make sense? A, a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, we might, we might dig in and unpack some of that a little bit. Like how, how, how do you feel like it's a letdown? I, well, I, you know, if I drive, if I, if I, if I drive up the five freeway, you hit cattle farm. And I mean, I'm sure I could have like bizarrely idealistic 
ideals about what a cattle farm should look like with cows out grazing in, in green grass and, you know, having a fresh brook to sip from in their time off from grazing. But what I see is cows on a, on a brown patch of earth packed in like, you know, flies or, or, or ants swarming a piece of candy and um, open sewage right next to them. Right. And so I just look at that and I go like, I suspect most of the meat that's just readily available in the supermarket is coming from a place that looks more like this than what my hope for that cow's life would be. Yeah. And, you know, there's an interesting piece to, to peel back with that when we're talking about cows in particular. And this actually extends to goats and, and sheep in the U.S. We're, we're kind of uh, meat no centric. You know, it's like we, we mainly beef, uh, chicken and pork, a little bit of lamb, very little goat. Other places around the world eat much more of these these other grazing animals. But those those cows that you see in that that CAFO com, confined area feed operation, they spend eighty five to ninety percent of their life on grass on pasture. Okay, and then at the at the end of that process, the bulk of them do end up in these pretty horrific uh, consolidated feeding areas, and this is where they're they're fed a higher proportion of of grains, and they're kind of fattened up, and and you know it. It induces health problems for the cattle, and arguably it produces all manner of problems for humanity and the environment, you know, like the the wastewater effluent and all that stuff. But it's interesting, if we were to tweak that system a little bit uh, and mainly leave them on grass or uh, things like crop residues, like when there's a cornfield or a wheat field or something, there's inedible pieces of that for humans, but it's perfectly edible and wonderful to have grazing animals go through that area. They they eat all that cellulosic material, they poop, they pee, they stir up the soil, they they enhance that microbiome diversity within the soil. And that is the way that regenerative meat production does happen. And that is a way that it really would not take a big push to change the current industrial meat system into something that looks much more benign and is much more benign. And it it's pretty close to that. And it's it, it, like people get really angry with a, a, both myself and my co-author, Diana Rogers, when we say that, but when we look at chicken and pork, by contrast, they spend their whole lives in confined area feed operations. They're exclusively fed things like like grains and soy. And what's interesting about that, like some, some I think, well-meaning but very ill-informed people like Leonardo DiCaprio, he has a, a film before the flood. He makes all these cases against animal husbandry as it relates to climate change. And then he makes a suggestion that we should shift our our meat consumption away from beef and towards chicken. And what's ironic about that is the chicken production is completely unsustainable. It is 100% dependent on these these confined area uh, feed operations the way it's currently done. Whereas beef cattle, even in conventional situations, Again, they spend 85 to 90 percent of their life on grass, which this is the way that biology has worked since life evolved on the planet. We've had, you know, by the time we hit 
grasses and plants. We have animals that ate them, and there's been this coevolution in this process. So you can't have have grasslands without animals to to interface with them. So I, I definitely understand your concern there, but the the interesting thing is that we're being told a narrative that we should absolutely reduce our meat intake, specifically beef, when ironically the, the beef is already arguably living a much better life in general, and it would take only a small adjustment in the system. And a lot of that adjustment boils down to some kind of monopoly type scenarios. Like we we were all exposed to this due to the COVID epidemic. There were examples of uh, uh, meat shortages occurring because these these very few enormous meat processing centers are are basically a monopoly play. Like there's a lot of legal stuff, a lot of of money that's involved in limiting the access to to the meat processing experience. Uh, prior to the 1950s, there were like 200,000 small-scale meat processing operations within the United States. Now there's about 150 of them. And the, the big food players effectively have a, a chokehold on that. Like they will pay for the, the time available at these large meat processing centers to prevent grass-based regenerative agriculture from even getting access to that. And, and so it's a, it's a remarkably skewed system. And this is why the, the book that we wrote, Sacred Cow, is, is pretty complex and has a lot of interwoven stories to tell because you can't just look at one piece of this in isolation. You really have to look at the whole picture before thinking about making some, some decisions around it. Yeah, I, to- I mean, I totally agree. I think that uh, you can look at one fact, you can add a value to that fact, and you can ignore all the other evidence and go about your business kind of missing the point a little bit. So that's fascinating. I had no idea. I just figured they were in this brown patch of earth and and fed from a trough somewhere. But if they're coming from uh, spending the majority of their life on grass, I guess that is pretty cool. It, it is. And what to me, the, the the ray of hope there is that it wouldn't take much to, to undo that particular system. It wouldn't take much to to really make, you know, to decentralize that. Like, why are we raising animals in one part of the United States, shipping them somewhere else to be finished and then shipping them back? To be processed. Um, the, earlier in the year, there was some legislation that was passed that um, chickens could be raised and butchered and processed in China, shipped to the United States, and then labeled as being country of origin in the United States. Really, like, this is ridiculous stuff. You know, it's, when you think about the carbon inputs and the fuel, to say nothing of just kind of the lack of of oversight on that, it's really appalling. So. This is where, you know, folks that that are kind of teetering on this edge of like, I don't know, meat meat seems like kind of a dodgy thing for health and the environment and ethics. Um, when you really look at the way that, that cattle, sheep, goats can be raised and their benefit on the environment, and it, the fact that we that system would just require a little bit of a tweak, a little bit of a push to move it into a, a fully regenerative state. It would decentralize it. This would uh, provide much more economic infrastructure for not just the the rural United States, but around the world. 
Um, the, the history of agriculture in the 20th century has been one of consolidation. There's four companies, two of them foreign-owned, that, that control like 85 to 90 percent of all the food produced in the United States. Okay. And that just seems really dangerous and, and short-sighted. Like the, the, the cycle of, of markets is for things to consolidate, become monopolies. And then this is where the government should play a role in breaking all that up and, and you know, creating that, that uh, engine of innovation again by people, you know, competing against each other. And in this, this world of, uh, you know, artificial intelligence potentially replacing so much of what humans do, it's, it's interesting. People don't appreciate this, but a regenerative farmer, a regenerative rancher, all that these people do is creatively problem solve every day, all the time. And there's this really nasty kind of bigotry towards, towards farmers and ranchers that they're dumb and they're uneducated. These people learn a ton about soil science and ecology. Uh, you know, they, they care about their animals. Yes, uh, oftentimes the animals are, are eaten, but it doesn't mean that they don't care about them. And it's not just for economic gain. Like they're, they're tied into, you know, the, the, the whole life experience of these animals. And so it's, it's interesting how dismissive as a culture we've become of the farming and ranching scenario. But it, again, around this uh, artificial intelligence topic, like doctoring and lawyering is likely to be largely done away with because it's so algorithmically driven in like 10 or 15 years. Like the, there's the potential that you just see a massive gutting of those those areas. And so when we're asking ourselves, where might humans work? You know, what type of work are we going to do? Arguably, the last frontier for artificial intelligence is going to be in creative problem solving. And this is exactly what ranching and farming is all about, particularly on the, the regenerative side. When we're talking about, you know, millions of acres of row crops that are run via a tractor, that's a different story. Uh, that that is not very labor intensive, human labor intensive, but this regenerative practice that people like Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms, uh, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, it, it's interesting. They employ a lot of people. These folks get paid well. They do an amazing job of raising the food that they raise, and they they uh, you know it it creates an economic engine for for small to medium sized communities, and this could be replicated all over the United States and honestly, all over the world. There's lots of different opportunities around this versus having a few consolidated monopolies that basically own the intellectual property of our food. Right. I, okay. There's a couple things, a couple questions I have. So, so one is when I think about this from a, in uh, terms of ethics, uh, if, if you're coming at meat or the use of animals as far as ethics are concerned, I think even on the big uh, agricultural farms that are using not even people, but machines, that animals still play a role in raising vegetables. Am I wrong with that idea? I mean, isn't... Well, they, they do in that it, we have to remember that if you have a a field that is planted, that field used to be, you know, nature. It used to be a natural environment. And we had to clear that field of both the, the animals and the plants that used to be there. Insects, snakes, invertebrates, like everything. Everything kind of 
kind of has to go. So we completely displace that environment and then we replace it with, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, in theory, human beneficial crop, whether it's wheat or corn or, you know, what have you. And then we have to defend that against all of these critters again. And in the process of harvesting, innumerable numbers of animals and and insects are are damaged or destroyed in that process and like the the plight of the bee population globally appears to be tied to the massive use of herbicides and insecticides that are sprayed on these industrial row crop systems and what's what's interesting currently the the main fertilizer used in these scenarios is this synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which is very fossil fuel intensive, and it damages and, and degrades topsoil. It doesn't grow topsoil. The roots stay very near the surface because it's a highly concentrated uh, mixture of nitrogen, and so it doesn't encourage deep root, root bed systems. And this is the, the topsoil that we have that is is blowing away or washing away each year. And there's there's a lot of mythology around this. There have been some quotes that we have 60 harvests left and other people say we have 80 harvests left. When you really get in and look at the where that came from, uh, nobody exactly knows where it came from. It just was something that was said at a, a United Nations conference and it became part of, of folklore, like it's written into scientific articles and stuff now. And, and it, you really can't find where, where that term came from. But we know, it, even though we don't know how many harvests we have left, we know there's an expiration date around that. Whereas I think to the point that you're making, if we integrate animals into that food system, it re-neutrifies the soil, it improves carbon capture in the soil, it improves the water retention capacity of the soil. And it actually rebuilds topsoil. The the middle of of the the United States and Canada and even down into Mexico is this giant grassland, and it it had dozens of meters of topsoil which have been developed over millions of years. And this was from a dynamic process of grasslands and big herbivores like uh, bison and elk and deer and. You know, 10,000 years ago in, in the Great Basin, you know, Reno, Nevada, down to Las Vegas, that was all a grassland. And there were like three species of camel. There were two or three species of elephant. And so we used to have a massive biodiversity of animals that, that lived on grasslands. And over the course of time, that diversity has been whittled down so that now we're basically stuck with mainly cattle little bit of sheep, a little bit of goats, but it, it's not the way these natural systems have historically functioned. I think about cities where the majority of people today live, you know, the, the highest density of people on the planet live in big cities. And then I just, I get overwhelmed. Look, I, I fly over America and see massive swaths of unpopulated land that I can't tell what's happening with the land. So I have no idea really, but I do know there is quite a bit of unpopulated land, but I go like, however, they've got it figured out today to feed everyone must be somewhat complex, like to get all the fitty, all the food into Los Angeles every day to feed all the millions of people here. That's a gotta be a complex system. If we wanted to shift to um, less industrial and uh, more sustainable farming, I just feel like that's got to 
I don't think that can happen overnight. Can't, I mean, that's got to be a, a, a radical change. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This is one area that I, you know, if I, I look into my crystal ball and I try to predict where things could go, I'm, I'm not sure. I could argue one of two ways. One is that our production becomes decentralized more in this, this uh, regenerative type model that we've talked about, more along the lines of polyface farms, white oak pastures. So lots and lots of different, uh, you know, farms and ranches taking advantage of, of different areas. But then because we do have this really sophisticated, complex distribution network, I mean, it, people hate uh, uh, places like Walmart, but uh, they the logistics that they pull off are just jaw-dropping. Like they were one of the earliest companies to buy a, a giant supercomputer to manage their logistics. And it, it is nothing short of miraculous what they're able to do with that. So you could make the case that we have decentralized production and then more centralized distribution, where in, instead of moving things around as much as we do, it's raised in a decentralized fashion. A lot more of the food is consumed locally, but then the, the excess or the things that are desired in different areas get consolidated through these distribution processes and, and get distributed around. The other notion, and you know, I, I lean more and more towards this. It's, it's funny, many futurists, people who are really enamored with technology, like all these technology billionaires and stuff like that, they're really enamored with these ideas of mega cities. And I, I see kind of the point that they make. There's some great economies of scale. There's some benefits. Like if you have these, these giant housing blocks, then like they help to cool each other and heat each other. And, you, you know, you can you, every single house doesn't need the, the same number of things. And so there's some redundancy that's improved there. But I think even with COVID, we see some real dangerous exposure there. And so it's it's interesting. I, I see some cracks in the notion that the, the future of hum humanity is megacities mainly. It could be that we revert back to more of a, a medium to small size city being the representative of the bulk of humanity. And we'll, we'll clearly always have these, these big distribution hubs like New York and uh, San Francisco and places like that. But it wasn't that long ago that the bulk of the world lived in more rural settings. It's only been within, I believe, the last 15 years that the largest proportion of the population is now living in urban centers. So that shift has occurred once. I don't see why it couldn't occur again. And we look at, at you know, kind of the deterioration of social fabric within urban centers and whatnot, like it, it may make a lot of sense to have many more smaller communities so that the, the values and the ethics of the, the local community get much better reflected versus trying to jam everybody into these, these big mega uh, city complexes where, you know, the, the social fabric, the social contracts are not as strong as what they used to be. So I'm not sure how that plays out, but I could definitely see one of those two scenarios or maybe a hybrid of those occurring. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I never experienced this in, I grew up in Los Angeles and I just never, my parents, I don't know if this kind of thing existed, but my first uh, trips to Europe as a, a teenager, uh, you know, you'd, you'd plan a dinner with, your friends and then you'd show up early because they'd have a list like one person has to go to the fish guy 
and and that fish guy got his fish from a specific place and then there's a meat guy and a bread guy and a and a, a guy for types of vegetables and all these things are coming from a single farm and then they're all kind of combined and and people are shopping in that manner almost daily the way i shop here is i i i hope to do one big shopping trip a week and get everything i need and more often than not the strawberries go rotten because the kids haven't eaten them, you know, and, and, and then I tell them I'm never going to buy strawberries again or whatever, whatever it is that they decided, you know, wasn't up to their palatability that week. But I don't, so, I mean, like what you're talking about, I think is radical. And like, that would be my ideal too. If, if, if I knew that everything I got was coming from some place that was kind of being created harmoniously together. And, you know, the idea of like seasonal fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I, I do remember as a kid, there would be huge periods of times where stuff would disappear and then yep. stuff would come back. And now it's like in California, avocados are a year round thing, which was not the case when I was a kid. Um, I just, and, and, uh, yeah, go yeah, ahead. And most of the rest of the world functions more that way. The U S is in kind of an interesting bubble. Like if you go to Australia, New Zealand, uh, you really get re-exposed to that, um, seasonality of, of different foods, particularly produce. And it, and it's worth mentioning everywhere else in the world, they mainly grass finish their their meat products and you pay extra for grain finished meats everywhere else in the world besides the United States. We are the only place that puts more energy and money into food and somehow it ends up being cheaper. Right. Yeah, I mean that go I go down a deep dark road of conspiracies that I have kind of <laughs> fabricated on my own that go back to like the Great Depression and people actually starving in America and then a fear of revolt. And so the subsidization of food comes in and suddenly nobody can starve again, but it has kind of a, 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 a reverse, the pendulum goes the other way and suddenly we're all fat, you know? Yeah. Um, that's where my mind starts to go of like, clearly somebody tried to solve this problem of people, people are starving to death, you know, at least in this country. And and that has had some consequences where we now throw away a massive amount of food and we're fat. Yeah, it's interesting. For the first time in history, more people are dying from overnutrition. I won't even say overnutrition, overeating with lack of adequate nutrition. For the first time in history, more people are dying from chronic degenerative disease and infectious disease. Uh, uh, you know, malnutrition, um, the things that plagued us in the 20th century, we did a really remarkable job of addressing that, but there were some some powerful unintended consequences with that. Right. And, and the, the flip side, too, is being in Los Angeles and being kind of around for all these fads that seem to spring up here. Um, I have uh, friends of my wives who will say, like, you know, almost in a let them eat cake kind of a, a a tone, they'll say everybody should eat pastured eggs. And and to me, I go like, you're paying almost 20 bucks a dozen for your eggs. 
And that just is not possible for a family who's paying $2 for a dozen eggs. Do you know what I mean? So whatever the shift is, that's got to be taken into consideration also. It, it, it does. And this is, you know, in this, this age of people talking about privilege and, and equality, when you do an honest analysis of the difference in, in success of poor versus middle class versus affluent families, there's lots of different factors there. But the nutrition of these, these wealthier individuals, even middle class and up, the kids tend to eat more meat. They tend to eat more dairy products. Overall, their nutrition is significantly better. And we know that that affects a, a cognitive function, the ability to, to study. Kids get sick less, so they don't miss as much school. And the, the current, you know, when someone makes this case that it should be grass-fed meat or nothing, if you can afford that, that's great. The wealthier people should subsidize this process until... Grass-fed meat, once again, is is cheaper than, than grain-fed meat. But for a family living on the margins, this is incredibly dangerous because they may already not be in a position to, to feed themselves as well. And what the reality is that on a calorie-by-calorie calorie basis, it's cheaper and easier to feed oneself off of junk food, off of highly processed junk food than it is to eat any amount of steak, chicken, kale, broccoli, watermelon, like that stuff to cook. It can go bad. So there's food wastage to, to be considered, which is a, a real anxiety for people living right on the margin. And so in the United States, it's, it's interesting. The, the group of people that are at the most risk for nutrient deficiencies, problems with success that may be driven by nutrition are being told that they they should do all manner of options other than eating meat. And then when we go outside the United States, it's fascinating. In Africa, there are millions of women who, because of cultural reasons, it's not legal for them to own property, physical land, but they can own animals. And so their sole source of income, their sole source of, of, new, of really effective nutrition and economic independence comes from their ability to raise grazing animals, but we're in this environment where a largely white, wealthy, vegan-centric elite based out of the United States and Europe are saying that all grazing animals are destroying the environment and we should do away with these. But there's absolutely no thought about what the impact this would have on different different people and different cultures around the world. Yeah, I mean, listen, when we hear about these things in America, I rarely think that people are taking a, a global look at, at circumstances. You know, uh, 25,000 people still starve to death every day on the planet. And I don't think anyone is starving to death in America. So I think it's very easy for people to say like, this kind of absolute universal statement without going like, well, you know, there are still people going hungry in that other country. You know, I, I think that those kind of things get overlooked all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. As far as grass-fed meat goes, listen, I will just say up front that you know, while I could idealize grass-fed meat, 
And 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 I actually really like the way grass-fed ground beef tastes. I I will take a grain-finished steak over a grass-finished steak any day of the week. They taste pretty darn good. Yeah. <laughs> I won't argue with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a that's a tough sell for me. Um, one of those. Well, it, yeah. and that's one of those things where I think we should just have a transparent food system where subsidies don't make grain-finished meat artificially less expensive than, than grass-finished meat. And uh, then that, and that, this is largely, again, the way, like if you go to Australia, New Zealand, even parts of, of Europe, generally the meat that you're going to usually get is going to be 100% grass-finished. It's finished on, on grass, but occasionally they will finish it with, with grains, and people pay a premium for that because of the, the added you know, cost of producing it. And uh, I, I think that that's a reasonable thing. But again, in the United States, we've created this artificial system where somehow the animals finished on grass, which should cost less, it's less energy intensive, there's less work involved, somehow is cheaper. And that's only due to the, the kind of funny money shell game that it occurs due to the, the farm subsidies programs. Right, because not only is the beef subsidized, the grains that they're eating are subsidized, and Correct. somebody's got to eat this stuff. And and you know, I think cornmeal could be delicious, but really, we're not going to start eating cornmeal in the same abundance as our beef would. Right, right. And soy, soy also is subsidized, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The agricultural products, like more the plant. Base products are disproportionately subsidized relative to most of the, uh, you know, like meat and dairy. Dairy has a fair amount of sub subsidies attached to it. Um, it. It's tough because, I mean, for farmers, they, they have and ranchers, there's a lot of risk exposure there. Like if they have a poor season, like if there's a bumper crop of, of milk, for example, the price can drop so low that these folks end up potentially going out of out of business. And so the subsidies are there in some ways to provide a little normalization so that the, the ups and downs don't necessarily take people completely offline. And this is kind of a national security issue. It's a food security issue. Um, there are things like uh, uh, crop insurance programs. <clears throat> that are, are designed in theory to help fix this. But what happens is this process called moral hazard, where people start getting incentivized, like people are paid to overproduce food then, or even to not produce food. And so it, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to unpack. You know, wanting a, a secure global food system is a, a completely laudable desire and goal, but there's a lot of unintended consequences that percola, percolate up out of that. And I'm, I'm honestly not entirely sure how to undo all that. I would love to see just more regional-based food production. And then I think that we would see a lot of those problems go away. I mean, is there, a, is there, a, is there, is it possible though also that if we did a, I mean, like all of this stuff, when I think of, I think of in terms of like, this is what we're doing and we could stop doing it today and do something else. And Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But that worries me because when I go down those roads, I go like, well, people have become dependent on these systems and, you know, anything. You stop using fossil fuels today, a massive portion of the population of the planet dies, right? That's a given because of the way we deal with everything is dependent on these fossil fuels. So in the same sense, if we stopped doing this kind of the, the, if we halted this system today and tried to, I, I just think it's gotta be a slow shift. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it's going to be a piecemeal transition and I think that depending on where you are, things will, will play out differently. Like I can't imagine that the solutions that will work best for the United States or even parts of the United States are going to be the exact same solutions that work in Chile and Peru and, and Brazil. You know, I mean, it, it, this is where it, it's interesting to me because the word that's kind of coming down from up on high is that we all need to shift towards this largely, you know, quote, plant-based, which really just just means grains and, and legumes, basically, which I, I, I can make up a part of the diet. But we're being told that the totality of the planet needs to shift their, their food to these few food crops, which the intellectual property is owned by these big mega, you know, supranational corporations and it it just uh it exposes a lot of risk in in so many different directions and really doesn't respect kind of the the sanctity or the sovereignty of of traditional food systems and you know if the US has been good at exporting anything it's been exporting our our bad food like that is possibly the most successful export we've ever had right 
is it possible that what they're looking at is based strictly on the systems that we have in place if we're going to continue with these systems that a move towards uh, vegetarianism is necessary for like environmental reasons? Is that the the, the kind of uh, computation they're doing? I think that that's some of what, what folks are, are putting forward. Like there's some really interesting, it, it, it's, it's really fascinating having been in this this scene for 20 years now and really thinking about this regenerative ag story for at least 10 years. You know, there are, are stories or descriptions that meat is very inefficient, uh, that it takes a huge amount of water, that it takes a huge amount of grains, which in, in theory, I think the implication there is that it's it's stealing food away from other human beings. But again, even conventionally raised beef, it spends 85 to 90% of its life on pasture. The bulk of what it's fed beyond that are crop residues, the leftovers from ethanol production. Producing ethanol, both for human consumption and gasoline, is massive. More corn is devoted to that than is eaten by humans globally. And and, And nobody... Nobody goes after ethanol production. So when when people are decrying the food that is allocated towards towards cattle, like at the end of the day, the 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 spectrum is about six to eight percent of the total food that is fed to cattle was something that a human being could have otherwise eaten. And and that number is is kind of murky to to get to when you also consider all of the land that is devoted to ethanol production, which the the byproducts of the ethanol production, the the crop residues are are fed to these animals because ruminants are amazing at upcycling these this cellulosic material that either needs to be composted or it's going to sit out in the sun and oxidize, which is a a really not great way to deal with plant material. It, It basically creates deserts. So when people are decrying the resource intensiveness of of meat production, again, and I'm I'm focusing really on beef, it's not a big push to make that thing 100% regenerative. You know, you're you're not allocating any resources away from human beings. And even in that story, two-thirds of the world's landmass is grasslands, and it is not appropriate for anything other than animal husbandry. There are very, very few places comparatively that are really appropriate for crop production. And there's huge tracts of land that it's either very rocky or steep or, or uh, you know, comparatively uh, poor soil, but it does grow grass and, and other plants. And these are the areas that historically have been really significant food contributors. But we have, we have, uh, you know, federal programs that make it illegal to put grazing animals on different different tracts of land. And then we end up with wildfires on this land and then we lose everything there. So it's a it's a fascinating, you know, topic and poorly managed cattle are injurious to the environment. Something that folks don't understand. If you if you just let cattle and grazing animals just kind of willy-nilly work their way across a grassland they will selectively eat what they want. And and then in a few days when that thing that they like starts growing back, they will selectively eat that again. 
And this is where overgrazing can happen. And in these regenerative agriculture, regenerative ranching models, these big herds of, of cattle and bison and, and deer and elk used to move in a tight pack because predators would would kind of pick away at their margins. And so these animals would move through an area and they would just mow everything. Everything got eaten and then they moved on because there was nothing left in that area. And they wouldn't work their way back to that area for you know some indeterminate period of time but that area got fertilized. It got the, the seeds turned over because the, the animals are taking it through their rumen. And oftentimes this is part of the life cycle of the, the different grasses and plants. There's a massive diversity of, of bugs and insects that, you know, interface with all that like poo and the, the grass and then the birds that eat the bugs. It's interesting. And, and for the last maybe 30 years, the Audubon Society has been very antagonistic towards uh, ranching and animal husbandry due to conservation concerns. But when they were exposed to regenerative agriculture, what they found was that the bird species were rebounding in these areas where regenerative animal practices were used because it restores much more closely the, the normal ecological systems. And it brings back the bugs and the invertebrates and all and the, the habitat that is useful for these bird species. So it's interesting that the Audubon Society, which, again, historically has been very antagonistic towards animal husbandry, they are fully embracing things like the Savory Institute hubs and other outfits that are using this regenerative practice. Do they still hold veganism above that or is are they saying like this is the penultimate or not the penultimate the the ne plus ultra version of creating food this is it i would love to interview maybe the uh whoever is in charge of the audubon society and and check their temperature on that that right. would be really interesting because the the thing is that people will say we'll use animals but just don't eat them but that doesn't really work either. Like there has to be this turnover of, of, of life. And this is something that I, I think is endemic in Western culture. We're really divorced from the reality that everything lives and everything dies. And it doesn't mean that we should be horrible to the other species on it, you know, the other beings on this planet. But there's, there's just kind of a reality that like death in nature for an animal is usually really nasty. And, and it's not to say that we can't improve the, the slaughter practices that we use within our, our current animal production system, but it's generally much more benign, much faster, but, you know, lower stress than, you know, getting taken down by, by packs of wolves or, or coyotes or something like that. So we're, we're just really divorced from the cycle of life and death. And uh, we, we try like crazy to ignore and hide all that stuff and so it seems like row crops and plants wow nothing's dying there but the reality is lots of things die in that that process there's a a concept called the least harm principle which looks at how many animals and and you know just everything again from from small invertebrates to snakes and rodents on up to to big animals how many critters die in the the production of conventionally raised food versus a system that is mainly built around eating large herbivores, you know, and is the life of a cow equal to the life of a mouse or a bird? And if we start doing kind of one for one on that, 
then the, the regenerative agriculture system actually produces the least amount of, of damage to the environment and arguably actually repairs it. It takes the least amount of life. And it's something that we could come back a thousand years from now and it could still be functioning just as well as what it is today and probably even better because it improves the, you know, the, the stability of ecosystems. I think we in America, I, I think that uh, being lean is a privilege here, actually, which is really bizarre. But when I th- and and so I don't really worry that there's enough space to feed America. But and then I know that a lot of places around the world are still are existing this way. But is there enough space for the world to eat this way? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's it's kind of one of those million dollar questions. Currently, under the current system, about 50% of the food that we produce is wasted. It, it's, it's not eaten. This is so, worldwide or just America? This is worldwide. Okay. And definitely there's a disproportionate element of that you know, in uh, affluent westernized cultures. But the only reason why anybody is starving to death these days is a distribution and a political story. Like somebody somewhere wants some group of people to suffer and so they're not they're, they're not you know doing the the economic and kind of social infrastructure to to feed and and take care of these folks and so as it stands right now like we have about a 50% margin on food production but when we look over at the the regenerative agriculture story and it varies based off location to location if you look at an area like West Virginia where polypace farms exist it's a pretty wet environment, and, and so they're able to grow a lot of food there. But the amount of, of meat they're able to produce per acre is about four to five times larger than the county average in that area. So they're, the, the thing that Joel Salatin will kind of joke when he's, when he's talking to, to ranchers about this stuff, he's like, hey, would you like four or five times more ranch land for free? And of course, everybody's like, yeah, sign me up for that. And he's like, well, I can't do that, but I'm going to teach you how to stock four to five times more animals on your, your area. So this is in kind of idealized areas. Other areas, like I, I just moved from uh, Reno, Nevada to New Brunfels, Texas. And in Reno, even though that area is it used to be grassland, it is high desert. It's quite dry. The area is brittle. You're not going to get the same type of food production there that you would in West Virginia. But what's interesting is regenerative practices in brittle, marginalized environments are at least about 40% more efficient than conventional practices. And again, this is something that over the course of time, we get a feed-forward mechanism where food production becomes better. Uh, my, my partner in this book, uh, Diana Rogers, she also has uh, an accompanying film called Sacred Cow. And in that film, we look at a rancher in the Chihuahuan Desert, which he has restored massive amounts of acreage to grassland there. And nobody, nobody who has lived there, even for multiple generations, ever knew that it was a grassland. And there's still grass seed out in that, that like blasted, baked desert soil. But using regenerative practices, he has taken an area that is basically unusable for food production and is restoring huge tracts of area that can produce 
not just the, the animal products, but they can do some amount of rotational crop production in those areas. You can't you can't crop that grassland indefinitely. Like you do one year of corn and then you let the animals eat that area and you let it go back to grass, but you can rotate that stuff around. So you can start getting this dynamic interplay between plants and animals in huge areas that we assume to be unproductive for food, you know, food manufacture, food production. So the, the low estimate is that we could increase our food production by about 40 percent relative to where we are now using regenerative practices. And then we have somewhere around an upper bound of four to 500 percent increase in certain areas. And again, these are going to be moister areas, more water, and, and those places have always produced more food. But even using regenerative practices, they produce significantly more food than the, the standard um, industrial agriculture, industrial meat system. Right. Um, okay, great. Well, this leads me to my final kind of area I wanted to talk to you about, and that's, and that's health. Um, I'm a big fan of history, which is why when paleo came around, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm interested in basically how people ate before Cheetos and before, you know, they figured out turning wheat into flour. Like, I'm interested in that. And when I look back through history, I cannot find a single civilization that was vegan. I can find some examples of vegetarianism, but they still did have some animal products in their diet. And so that, I guess, is my hesitation about veganism, not even looking into uh, necessarily scientific studies on how the body absorbs protein from differently the the amino acid chains from animals versus like you know you could say a cup of spinach has more protein than x amount of beef and that might be true and then i read like well but you absorb it differently and all of this kind of thing i'm more looking at like the inuits ate only meat and fat and uh certain tribes in africa ate only meat at literally the inuits had no access to vegetables at all um, and then you go to the Sikhs and go, well, they're largely vegetarian, but they still had some animal products in their diets. And so I guess I'm mostly asking you from a health standpoint, why animal products are necessary. Yeah. You know, it's it, in a wealthy, privileged Western environment. Animal products are not 100% necessary for most people. I will say that it's interesting. The American Council of Dietetics has a, a position statement that vegan and vegetarian diets are appropriate for all phases of the life cycle. There is absolutely no research that suggests that vegan and vegetarian diets are, are safe for uh, infants and children. There's, there's none. And in fact, in Europe, it's considered to be child abuse to feed in infants and children, a, a, veg, a vegan diet, specifically vegetarian, is kind of a different deal, and that's very broad. Some people think fish is okay, some people think dairy is okay, what what have you. But you know, it's it's uh, man that that kind of ethical underpinning there is is interesting. If you really don't want to be a a player in the, the animal husbandry or consumption of animal product story, 
we can get you long chain uh, uh, omega-3 fats from algae. Not everybody does a good job of elongating the short chain fats from, from you know, like nuts and seeds and whatnot. So we have some workarounds there. Uh, we have some workarounds with uh, B vitamins, iron, zinc. These things are endemically low in vegetarian and vegan populations. But again, going back to the, the film, uh, Sacred Cow, there's an interesting piece in there where a gentleman from sub-Saharan Africa is making the case that there is not a CVS where the people that he serves can go get their B vitamin pills and their, their iron and their zinc. And the only foods that they have available that contain these, these literally vital for life nutrients are animal products. So this is, again, a really remarkable story of, of privilege and affluence telling the rest of the world what they should and shouldn't do, but being completely ignorant of what their situation is. We're, we're vilifying people who raise livestock. And this is the, for some of them, it's their sole ability to have economic independence. This is true of millions of women and then by extension, their children. And then tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, they do not have access to, to synthetic supplements that can fill the gap of a, a quote, well-formulated vegan diet. So, it, you know, it, it, and what, what we see is about 85% of people who start a vegan diet end up peeling out of it. Frequently, it's for health reasons. I think that different people can handle it better or worse to varying degrees. Um, it is maybe worth mentioning that there was a study that, that looked at um, what vegans do when they, they go on a drinking bender and they tend to cheat by eating, <laughs> eating meat products. And so I, I, in the back of my head, my cynical self is kind of like, are they able to handle this? Because once every two weeks, they get liquored up with their friends and they grab a steak or a, you, you know some tacos or something. And it's actually just kind of like barely keeping them in the, in the game. Like, is that really a, a vegan diet in, in that scenario? But, it, you know, it's a complex topic. But again, I really think that there's a strong case to be made that um, if you want to choose a vegan or vegetarian diet and you live in the West, that's great. But it is remarkably uh, uh, egotistical and, and uh, uh, just so, so kind of ugly type of of privilege to suggest that everybody else in the world should be eating the same way that you eat because of these kind of moral uh, reasons, because we can tackle the environmental stuff, like the, the, the boogeyman around the environmental impact of, of animals. I wouldn't say it's easy to address, but it's very convincingly addressed. We can button up many of the ethical concerns and make the case that regenerative practices actually kill fewer animals in the current row crop centric model. So then we're kind of left with the ethical debate. But if we can't feed ourselves in a way that is healthy, and if we can't fix our environment in a way that's healthy without regenerative animal agriculture, then the ethics piece is, is a little bit of a moot point. Like it's, it's um, if some people want to opt out of that, that's great. But Joel Salatin has a great line about this where um, he is, being asked by a, a vegan family, well, what are we supposed to do, you know, with, with your regenerative agriculture approach? And Joel said, if you let me feed my family the way I want to, I promise you I will grow enough food to feed your family the way you want to. And this is just a sentiment that is 
incredibly one-sided. The folks that are advocating for this vegan-centric model want to destroy any culture or any thought that doesn't support that model. Whereas the flip side is kind of like, hey, you do you and I'll do me. But there's this, uh, you know, all the way from the World Health Organization on down, there's this, this vilification of animal products. But there is beginning to be some pushback, like some of the, the, the countries in Africa are really pushing back against these dietary guidelines because they know how on the margin they are and they can't grow row crops. They can grow animals. And what is being suggested is that these countries that are trying to pull themselves out of abject poverty must become completely beholden to the United States and Europe and other, other industrialized areas for their food systems, which is nuts. What's happening in Venezuela right now, in part, is that they moved all of their food production away and put it into the oil industry, and there's literally no more farmers there. And so when, when the price of oil tanked and their economy imploded, they're dealing with the after effects of having no in-house food production. They became 100% dependent on imports of their food. And I think that that is a, a disastrous proposition for anyone. Right. I mean, I guess so. I mean, it, would it even be possible, like, if these, if these poor countries that can produce animals were to listen to us, could they... Uh, that that means that they're just suddenly importing all of their food from Western countries. Is that the pl- I mean, is that the plan? It, you, that's a great. It, it, it kind of is. I mean, this is some of the stuff, that, and it gets a little bit Alex Jonesy like out there stuff, but it's also pretty defensible. Um, some of the game plan of outfits like Monsanto are to own the intellectual property around different types of of seeds, whether it's corn or wheat or soy or what have you. And then it you you aren't in a position to even reseed that stuff. You have to buy it from them every year or they will come in and like sue you and take your land. And there's some really ugly stories around that. And the the flip side of this is that any given nation, any given people have the sovereignty around what they do with their food production, their food consumption. Uh, we been doing some work with the the nation of Curacao. It's a, a small island nation in the the Caribbean, and they're in a heck of a, a pickle. They have like an eighty percent type two diabetes rate on the island. Um, they no longer produce hardly any of their local food. They used to have a vibrant ranching economy there, and it's just gone. And their their island is reverting to desert, and they're losing what little topsoil they've had. And so they're really in a and what they did is they became 100% dependent on imported foodstuffs. And these imported foods needed to have a long shelf life. They became engineered to be hyper palatable, to be really, really, you know, tasty and delicious. And so, the you know, many places like this just became 100% dependent on outside inputs for food. And that food was really unhealthy and it's destroying their population. Like they're facing this implosion of their healthcare system due to type 2 diabetes rates. So they're doing some really fascinating work where they understand that they must have local food security, that they must produce more of their own food, they must reverse desertification, and they've got to get out ahead of this type 2 diabetes epidemic. And they see it all completely 
linked together and tied together, they're small enough that if they, they, they have the potential to really get some headway on this, but if they do, it will be big enough that it's a proof of concept that other people can look at this and say, hey, yeah, I don't necessarily want to buy all my food from like some U.S.-based, you know, giant food aggregator. Like we want food independence and food sovereignty. So I'm really optimistic that some places like Curacao will start, you know, becoming these these examples of success of reversing both their their healthcare crises, but also fixing their food systems. Right. Well, Rob, thank you so much. This is this has given me so much to think about, and and I actually feel that I. I I I had some sense of anxiety about all of this that I feel is alleviated because at the end of the day I think even if there were some you know I think a lot that has happened over the last couple of months make me very worried about kind of uh the structural integrity of countries you know to be honest with you and so I go like well at the end of the day if these big systems fail, we can just go back to a version of life where it was far more complex and yet much simpler at the same time. Yeah, I, I would. I, I completely agree with you. I would make the case that it would behoove us to think about a soft landing transition out of the current system versus having it foist upon us. Right. Like, there was a, a study in 2015 talking. There have been studies that have pointed out like the uh, the electrical grid in the United States is at very high risk exposure to a terrorist attack. Like a couple of, you know, five or 10 guys in a pickup truck with rifles could could take down huge swaths or maybe all of the power grid in the United States. So that's like a national security issue. A similar thing is that, you know, what we saw with these meat processing plants getting shut down due to COVID because all of this stuff is so consolidated, the bulk of the meat, the dairy, even the grain products go through a very few number of processing centers. And if someone were to decide to make that kind of a, a terrorist focus to damage our food system so that millions of people starved, it would not be a difficult thing. It would be much easier to do than hijacking a plane and flying it into a building at this point because nobody's really looking at that, but the impact on it, the asymmetric impact is so staggering. So there's a host of reasons to head into this regenerative path. Like it makes the case that it could be one of our best tools for mitigating climate change. It could uh, uh, decentralize our economic systems and provide a stable economic and work base for, you know, millions of people, both in the United States and, and elsewhere. It's kind of it's arguably the only system that we could come back a thousand or five thousand years from now and it's still functioning. The current row crop system is not going to be here five thousand years from now. We will either be gone or we will have shifted to something dramatically different. And you know, we're not gonna raise food in a vat. Hydroponics are great for growing pot and lettuce, but that's that's not gonna solve the the problem. And the funny thing there is once once pot became legal in various places to grow, people abandoned the hydroponics in mass because it's so expensive to do that relative to growing it outside. So that's a whole, whole other thing. But there's so many compelling reasons for why we should investigate this regenerative, you know, story. And I, I would just challenge people that if you are incredulous about this, that's great. 
But what I would encourage you to do is at least kick the tires on the potential that Planet of the Vegans is not the route to sustainability or saving the planet or anything. It may, in fact, be driving the boat in exactly the opposite direction. And something that that looks more akin to a late 18th century farm, but with electric fencing and the use of satellite imaging to know where we're going to graze animals today. And so some really high technology interface with a very low technology process might be the future of food. And to, to just leave a little bit of space in your mind for that being a possibility. Yeah, I, I do I do get I do get caught up in some of these ideas that seem radical and go like that sounds great for ten percent of the population of the planet. You know, if we you know, if we if we wanted to get rid of all fossil fuels today, how many people actually survive that? So Okay, if we're going to do some slow shift towards solar and wind and all of this, great, that's great. And and certainly we shouldn't be throwing trash in the ocean. That seems crazy to me too. Um but these kind of extremes of of like I just when I hear the these arguments for veganism, I just don't I just don't know if that's planetarily workable you know i i think a lot of these arguments that come up in america are very specific to what we can do in america as the one of the wealthiest nations on the planet you know and and so i go like try to expand that out and it fails um and and then there are other stats where i where i read like we consume more meat than any other country on earth per capita and i go like yeah okay that might be true also, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should consume none. Well, it, 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 it actually isn't true. Like meat consumption has decreased over the last 30 years. This is some of the really interesting stuff when you really, uh, you know, like uh, you mentioned the, um, you'll see these infographics where like a, a piece of broccoli has more protein than a steak or something. I mean, these things are just patently false, but they get, put forward with authority and enough people recirculate it that it, it kind of gets gets accepted as as fact and uh, uh they're, they're fairly easy to refute but people get really cranky when you you get in and and you know analyze that stuff so we don't we're not the top meat consumer uh argentina is on a per capita basis uh, of meat um and in the u.s we have shifted away from beef and we eat more, far 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 more chicken right now. i mean i know and, that to be true yeah. just for myself also i yeah. i i can i probably eat a, a, twice as much chicken as i do um beef uh but that's literally just because i'm trying to cut uh fat right now and lose mm-hmm. and lose mm-hmm. fat. It's not a thing. It's not done for any moral reason at all. Um, I God, I got. I'm gonna have to look into the health stats of Argentina. They do pretty well. <laughs> you know, it's if there there was just a, a great paper, and this is kind of out in the weeds, a little bit of an aside, but there was a in a 12 million person analysis of cholesterol levels and all-cause mortality. So, you know, people dying from all 
all causes. And what emerged, it was interesting, was that they were looking at total cholesterol and some of the, the cholesterol fractions. But the lowest all-cause mortality occurred at about 200 milligrams per deciliter of cholesterol, which is kind of on the high side. They would probably want to recommend a statin for you. But in biology, we see a lot of things called U-curves. So like if we look at the amount of something relative to disease processes, like if we think about vitamin D, if you have very low vitamin D, you have higher rates of cancer, you have uh, potential for rickets, and you have all kinds of you know, autoimmune diseases. And then at a, there's a, a point where increasing vitamin D levels decreases your likelihood of all these other, Ill, a bunch of different illnesses. But then if vitamin D keeps going up, then we start having problems and we have the, you know, increased illness from other things. And what was interesting is the, the cholesterol levels were a U-shaped curve, but lower cholesterol was correlated with much more danger than higher cholesterol. Like the, the right-hand side of the curve was very flat, and you had to get quite high in cholesterol levels to be as at risk for different morbidity and mortality as what folks were at relatively low cholesterol levels. So this is another one of those examples where it, it's not a black and white thing. Like the suggestion here is that there is a linear relationship between animal product consumption and a host of different factors, ranging from cardiovascular disease to cancer. Like there's this number uh, kicked around that uh, uh, consumption of, of processed meats has a 20% increase in colon cancer rates. When you dig into that, the background probability of anybody in the United States developing colon cancer is 5%. But according to the research that's done on this, and this research is kind of kind of tough to even believe because they're food frequency questionnaires. They ask people, what did you eat last week, last month, last year? And then they add all this stuff up. They torture it via statistical analysis. So, But even if you believe the data that comes out of that, if someone ate processed meat, like basically bacon, a big serving of bacon, every day their whole life, their absolute risk goes from 5% to six percent, so that's five people in a you know in a, a hundred versus six people in a hundred. But that gets reported as a relative risk increase of twenty percent because the difference between five and six is twenty percent. Right. So it, so it, you just go item by item with all these claims, and I don't know if these folks are well-meaning or there's actually some sort of a hidden agenda or they're just not very good at science. But the, the stuff keeps getting unpacked. But as we've kind of seen in the show, like probably half of your listeners have either committed suicide or, or fallen asleep, you know, listening to this stuff because it's really complex. Whereas there's this kind of asymmetric warfare going on. The kind of vegan centric model is meat causes cancer. Meat destroys the environment. Meat is unethical. And it sounds super compelling. You can find some, some you know, uh, video or, or, you know, pick pictorial things to, to make your case. Whereas the flip side for me to unpack this, it's like a PhD dissertation in economics, ecology, non-equilibrium thermodynamics. And nobody really takes the time to care about that. You know, it's a really complex thing to unpack. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I really think people should 
figure out what works for them by doing things differently. You know what I mean? Like if you want to try being a vegan and you find you feel great and, and you're meeting your physical goals in, in, in a, a super efficient manner, then I'm like, that's awesome. Do that, you know? Um, and, and the same goes for carnivores and, and anything else. I, I, I do kind of fall apart and, and, and can't get, be bothered by any of these claims that say this is the only right way. I just go like, I don't believe I, I can't, I can't buy into it. You know, um, now you can present me with a more efficient way to have a farm. And I see that and I go, yeah, that looks like a more efficient way to have a farm. I, I, I would prefer to have a farm like the, did you see this movie? The biggest little farm, I think it's called. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Movie's awesome. And, and like they took a really kind of dilapidated piece of land and turned it into this beautiful idealistic farm. And I go like, yeah, I want to eat the animals that come off that farm because the animals look pretty damn happy, you yeah. know, um, versus driving up the five and seeing the cows next to a open sewage. That to me is not appetizing. And it could just be a preference for you know, aesthetics, that's possible too. I'm open to that too. I've found that I feel better in eating meat. My wife has a hard time digesting meat, so she doesn't eat a lot of it. And then once a month, she, she gets low iron and needs to eat some meat and eats the meat and feels better, you know? But I think to each his own with that kind of thing, the claims that there's a one-size-fits-all and that you can also save the planet. To me, I just, I, I can't be bothered by that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Awesome. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating stuff, and I really appreciate talking to you. Huge honor. Thank you. I'm a big fan, so thank you. Awesome. Talk to you soon. And now I will answer some questions we received at AmericanGlutton.net. This question comes from Jason. He asks, what can I do to motivate myself to at least a workout or a loose diet to be ready for when the gym opens back up so that I can easily transition back to it? Uh, so this is like uh, specifically, I guess, a quarantine question and transitioning back to the gym. I, I, I personally have continued to work out, you know, I've, I've definitely missed more days during the quarantine than I did prior to the quarantine. Uh, I didn't really miss a lot of days at the gym prior to the quarantine. And I've definitely missed a few days of my home workout. Not many, but, uh, but I've missed a couple. Uh, I find the quarantine workout to be much harder for me specifically with what I'm doing because I'm trying to go a lot heavier than the weights I have at home. And so the weights I have at home, I wind up having to do like six, seven times the reps. And I'm doing them very slowly to try to get every last bit of, of uh, muscle fatigue. It just winds up taking a lot longer um, and it's not as fun. So it is a bit more of a chore than I'm used to experiencing at the gym. Uh, that doesn't answer your question at all. Sorry, that was my own little sob story aside. I would say that getting steps 
here's the thing. They, they talk, I've, I've read countless times that vitamin D is, is a really good part of assisting the immune system. And, and specifically with a lot of these COVID-19 cases, they've noticed a, a deficiency in D. And I even was on a, a text chat group with a bunch of my friends and they were talking about the best supplementation for D. And, and I just personally think walking around outside is the best way to uh, defeat a vitamin D deficiency. From everything I've looked at, you can just, and you know, maybe if you live in England, I don't know where you live, Jason, um, and it's overcast all the time uh, and you're not getting enough sunlight, I don't know, then you take a supplementation. I live in California, so we don't have a lot of gray days and I just go outside to try to make sure um, I get my vitamin D, uh, but, but walking outside is, is a really great and pretty easy way to maintain some kind of fitness. I think in this day and age, it's not necessary anymore to walk around outside. And so we could have a lot of situations, especially during quarantine where we're just sitting and not moving a lot. So I just think, Make as healthy choices as you possibly can with what you're eating and move your body as much as possible. Thanks for the question, Jason. I hope that was helpful. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.